thanks everybody for joining us tonight. Um, the KGB nonfiction series. We're we have a very special evening tonight. We're we're very lucky and honored to have two true literary masters among us, Elliot Weinberger and literary and Lydia Davis. Um, Part of our goal with the series this fall has been to really stretch the bounds of what we consider nonfiction and with their wide-ranging bodies of work in poetry, criticism, fiction, nonfiction, translation. We think that's just what we can expect tonight. Um, so there's, there's not really much I can say about these authors that their reputation won't, but I think tonight is, it's extraordinarily special because we have two longtime friends uh, reading, and we're very happy to be a part of this. Anyway, um, we're going to get started with Lydia Davis, who has a, had a very prolific career as a poet, uh, the author of the novel The End of Story, and the author of various short story collections, including most recently, including recently The Varieties of Disturbance, which was a finalist for the 2000, 2007 National Book Award. Um, Lydia has also done extensive work as a translator. She's had acclaimed editions of Proust and most recently Madame Bovary. Um, she's among numerous other awards. She's received uh, MacArthur Fellowship in Fiction and has been named a Chevalier, the Order of Arts and Letters by the French government, which means she's a knight, which is awesome. <laughs> I'll let you take it from here, Lydia. drinks. So let's see. Um gotta get the light set, the mic set, and I guess it's really nice to be back here. I think I was last here for a tribute for Jane Bowles. That was kind of fitting to be here for that. And now I'm here with, with Elliot Weinberger who's an old old pal of mine, as was just said. Um, I knew him when he was shorter than I was. <laughs> <laughs> then, strangely, he grew. He changed. So we were pals in high school, and we're still pals. I think there was, there was a little hiatus in there, but he hasn't changed much. I don't know if I've changed. <laughs> Coolest kid in high school. I wasn't, he was. <laughs> so it's, it's fun to be challenged to read nonfiction, uh, especially since a lot of my work um, is, is headed straight toward nonfiction anyway. And, um, but tonight I, I'm going to read two very short pieces to start with, and then a rather long, um, it's, it's an excerpt from what will be an even longer poem um, based on found material um, and written in, it, largely in um, 19th century American language. So it seemed like the least appropriate thing to read at the KGB bar. <laughs> 
but we'll see. I have never read it out loud, partly because it didn't exist till a few days ago. So we'll see how that sounds in this context. <laughs> but first, the two short ones. The first, and they're both nonfiction too. Got to keep to the rules. The first is called Circular Story. On Wednesday mornings early, there's always a racket out there on the road. It always wakes me up. I always wonder what it is. It is always the trash collection truck picking up the trash. It comes every Wednesday morning early. It always wakes me up. I always wonder what it is. This is called Susie Brown Will Be in Town. Susie Brown will be in town. She will be in town to sell her things. Susie Brown is moving far away. She would like to sell her queen mattress. Do we want her queen mattress? Do we want her ottoman? Do we want her bath items? It is time to say goodbye to Susie Brown. We have enjoyed her friendship. We have enjoyed her tennis lessons. <laughs> and now for our village, which will, I don't know if it's starting at the beginning, but it will definitely stop at a point that probably isn't the end. And I I think it'll take it'll be about ten minutes. So it's 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 written as as a long poem, but based and adapted from prose. The road lay exactly east and west, we children knew, because at noon the shadow of every chimney fell straight across the roof towards the eaves, and twice every year, for a few days, the great red sun rose and set in the middle of the road. The peculiarities of our climate we carefully observed, how the sun arose far to the northeast in summer, past our meridian high up in the heavens, and wheeled far around to the northwest before setting, and appeared larger than a cartwheel when it touched the horizon how the great snow banks in winter would melt when the warm southeast winds from the Gulf Stream brought the deluging showers which fell in torrents upon our roof and dashed furiously upon our south windows, and the large drops chased each other down the panes, while the thick atmosphere seemed to grow darker as the sun arose higher in the heavens, how the rain and melted snow would fill all the hollows with ponds which the next morning, under a stinging northwester, would be sheeted over with ice, over which we all came sliding to school. The first view I had of the fair world I had come to live in was from the broad step of the end door looking westward, the time a Sabbath afternoon in summer, the sun yet high in the heavens, shines in at the open door and bathes in golden light, the grass plot before the garden fence, the blades of corn and the young leaves of the balm of Gileads, 
bright against the dark green of the pine woods on the north, the azure sky and the deep blue of the ocean and grassy pond on the south. Beyond a few cleared fields adjoining the road stood on the rising ground, the meeting house like an old lady's bonnet, on still higher ground the parsonage and beyond the parsonage appearing to be in the middle of the road an object watched with great curiosity, the large windmill, its forearms so far away, no bigger than a lady's fan, and sails made of the blue sky itself. In the smoky distance, where the groves that skirt Hall's meadows, were the groves that skirt Hall's meadows under the broad blaze of the great sun, which seemed to stand still for a long time before at last, growing larger and larger, it went down. As the landscape thus blended with the blue sky and seemed to fade away into it, so earthly and heavenly things in my first conceptions were mingled together. If a man should travel far towards the setting sun, I thought he might go to heaven. Those fleecy, gorgeous clouds belonged to the other world, and just beyond them was the region where God and the angels dwelt and our little Sydney who had died. The profound Sabbath day quiet of those times can hardly be conceived. No church bell was within hearing, for there was none on our houses of worship. No carriages were in the streets, for the only transportation then was by ox cart, and the oxen too claimed their day of rest. A mile and a half away, the ocean appeared perfectly smooth, and the vessels inshore were long in passing the opening in the woods, while those in the offing seemed to hang all day as white specks between the sky and the water, as if to break the utter silence. A cock crowed at midday and was answered by another and another from the far-off hamlets. Even on the Sabbath, there was some necessary work to be done. Grandfather's cattle and our own are to be driven to water. Across the fields to the south, down the long slope of the hill to the maple swamp, old Brindle leads the way, the oxen and other cows marching in their regular order. The water that sinks into our fields from the rain and snow gushes up through the soft peat of the swamp, pure, sparkling, and never freezing among the tussocks. The cattle find the spring holes in our left to return of their own accord after browsing in the swamp and neighboring woods. When there was no meeting in our church, we children watched from the window whatever moving object came in sight until it coming nearer, we made out the traveler with his pack or the returning sailor or the crazy man singing or muttering to himself who engaged our attention and kept us still until they disappeared where the road entered the woods on the east, under the Gothic arch formed by the interlocking branches of ancient oaks and pines. There were certainly more crazy men and crazy women and vagrant persons and loungers and storytellers then than now. Crazy Barney was a native of our town and never wandered away from it. Like the ancient rhapsodists who went about repeating the epics of Homer, he walked the town over, bareheaded and barefoot, repeating his own rude rhymes, mostly in couplets of peculiar rhythm. Carry me over the river sticks, he would say. 
and he came near meeting death before his time at the hands of crazy David, who was no innocent like Barney, but would do violence to the weak, and who tied him to a stake on an elevation east of Island Pond, then covered with high wood, and began to bury him alive till a stray man came that way and rescued him. Of the vagrants who frequented our village, most belonged to our own town, but some were from remote places, and their coming attracted a crowd of children who followed them from house to house. A few, like those comets that enter the solar system but once, appeared only for a few days and never returned. One was Aventon, by nature a true orator. After a drink of gin or New England, acquired in the village store, a cap on his head or sometimes a handkerchief wrapped in the shape of a turban, his eyes, his eyes pale and pale blue and flashing, he would walk to and fro before the counter, pouring forth from stentorian lungs passages of poetry, patriotic speeches, war songs, and old ballads, the bloody scene of Paul Jones being his favorite rehearsal. We children were entranced, too, by the music of blind Frank as he sat in the store surrounded by old and young, himself inspired by his violin, rolling up his sightless eyes, laughing and talking to his instrument, and sometimes singing with it. On the Sabbath once a year in early spring, we all go gathering docks. The winter is now over. The fire is low upon the hearth, for it is a warm morning. We look out the kitchen windows upon the springing hops, peppermint, and evergreen. The neighbors are gathering, but not for meeting. Each one has a basket or tin pail. They are going to grassy pond for docks. It is an errand judged proper about once a year for the Sabbath day. The docks, so agreeable for the first salad of the year, yet so sharply acid, so pleasant to the eye with their long red stems standing out from the muddy bottom, their curly leaves above the water, in the shallows among the new flags, on the sides of the long ditch, and on the verge of the great spring hole, we wade and pluck them for the boiled dinner. One other indulgence was allowed on the Sabbath. As the sun neared the horizon and the first notes of the pinkwink were heard, we cousins would go together into the woods by the village and pick the first mayflowers, the trailing arbutus, so fragrant, so delicate, pink and white, among their rough leaves of dark green. On the day of rest, the old windmill was divested of its sails and its lower arm fastened. We fancied it ain't mine. We fancied that the meeting house resembled in shape an old lady's bonnet or a cocked hat of the revolution or the chapeau of Napoleon as he stood in the picture with folded arms in deep meditation. And from a distance when we rode to Hall's Meadows or sailed to Monomoy, we saw in this old structure the head of the Sphinx looking calmly off upon the sea. The hushed silence that pervaded the large audience inside of nearly all the families in the town, the solemn tones of the minister 
and the grand harmony of the old fugues that were sung made me conscious of a presence that I could not see and strengthened that early impression of mine that some of the things of this world belonged also to heaven. The light from the north windows came in so agreeably that it was never intercepted with a curtain, and whatever we understood of the discourse was made more impressive by the view we obtained through those windows on a summer's afternoon of the great white clouds on the deep blue heavens and the green earth below, bestrewed with the modest flowers of the season and the white clover heads among the slabs of marble, slate, and sandstone, standing thickly over the sleeping congregation outside. There was no Sabbath school in those days, and in summer the boys gathered pond lilies at noontime from the meeting house pond north of the graveyard, while the men lay on the grass telling stories. In winter, people flocked from the church to the neighboring houses before the echo of the falling pew seats had ceased. To my father's and grandfather's, where the great fireplaces roared with immense volumes of flame from the crackling pine wood and reddened the faces of the matrons and old men. The hearth in my grandfather's old kitchen was so wonderfully large it could receive wood eight feet long and the back log was rolled on over the embers. Its two ends gave us children comfortable seats when the fire was low and we took our first lessons in astronomy by observing the transit of the stars through the telescope of the sooty chimney. In the closing hour of the Sabbath, our grandfather would sit leaned back in his chair by the side of the fireplace reading the great Bible or sleeping over it, even then a feeble old man, his hair silvery white hanging each side of his spectacles. Then we would steal into the barn to play in the forbidden haymow or worry old Miller in the stable or madden the big hog in the sty. It was by this hearth that our love was enkindled for the authors in prose and verse that were accounted good Sunday reading and with this hearthstone how much of my knowledge of the world was connected. Our woods of a dozen acres, our moderate hills and valleys lying between, our rivulets, ponds, and meadows were transformed by the imagination into the famous forests and mountains and valleys and streams and lakes of sacred and profane history, poetry, and mythology. The exact spot where Joseph was sold by his brethren the situation of Potiphar's house and the prison where he interpreted the dreams and the place where he made himself known to his brethren have for me remained here in our village in spite of all the knowledge of geography I afterwards acquired. Because, Paul, because John Bunyan is read by the old kitchen hearth, for us, John Bunyan's pilgrim, made his wonderful journey within sight of our kitchen windows. Milton's angels fought in the air over our garden, and the vanquished fell on the burning marl in the deep hollow. Egypt was located in the westerly part of these very woods, beyond the transverse hollow which separates the lot from my father's homestead. The Nile flowed eastward near the maple swamp. The Red Sea was out of sight toward the northeast. Pharaoh's palace on the highest ground all the patriarchs lived in grandfather's fields, both on the north and south of the road 
moving from hill to hill or into one of the deep hollows when the Lord commanded. When Abraham came into Palestine, it was by the northwest corner of the field, now Brother Henry's lawn. When he went into Egypt, it was through the big hollow and bedbug woods into the great woodlot. On the north side of the big hollow under the large oak lived Abraham when he sent away Hagar to wander through the north woods instead of going direct to Egypt. And the Ishmaelites always lived in those regions toward the northeast. Jacob fled from his brother and was overtaken at night in the center of Henry's lawn near the cherry tree and there saw the angels ascending and descending over his pillow of stones. Under the old apple tree in the westerly part of the hollow, he afterwards buried his beloved Rachel, and near grandfather's well was his meeting with Esau. The twelve sons of Jacob were feeding their flocks south of father's house when they plotted the death of the darling Joseph, the company of Ishmaelites, having purchased the beautiful slave continued their journey around the little pond, appearing in the land of Pharaoh on the east of the hollow. The Garden of Eden was in no other place than Grandfather's Orchard, and the magnificent pictures of Milton could never remove it. And then the very end of the poem will probably be these these lines. Along with a few of the sorrows that are appointed unto men, I have had innumerable enjoyments, and the world has been to me, even from childhood, a great museum. Thanks for enduring that. I would now like to introduce Elliot Weinberger. Elliot is a New York writer, often writing about the world beyond New York. He is the primary translator of Octavio Paz into English, the Mexican writer and poet. His anthology, American Poetry Since 1950, Innovators and Outsiders, was a bestseller in Mexico, and his edition of Borges' Selected Nonfictions received the National Book Award Critics Circle Prize for criticism. In 1992, he was given Penn's first Gregory Kolovecos Award, for his work in promoting Hispanic literature in the United States. And in 2000, he's given the first American literary writer to be awarded the Order of the Aztec Eagle by the government of Mexico. He's the editor of New Directions Anthology of Classical Chinese Poetry. And he's also written extensively about his life in New York. And his essays at times take on an experimental style and have been called documentary prose poetry. He's the author of such essay collections as What Happened Here, The Bush Chronicles, An Elemental Thing, and Oranges and Peanuts for Sale, which are both by the door. And I'll leave the rest to you, Elliot. Thank you. Thank you. it's nice to be here. The, the last time I, I gave an extended reading in New York um, was five years ago, also here at the KGB Bar. So um, it's nice to be back, and it's especially nice to be doing this with, with Lydia. 
uh, and she said, well, I, I know Lydia since I was 13. And, um, and you know, as she said, uh, she used to tower over me. And uh, I grew taller and she grew wiser. Um, but it's not, it's not true that, you know, that I was the coolest person in high school. Lydia was way cooler. I mean, she was like Nadja, you know, woman of mystery. Um, uh, so, and uh, it's, it's curious, though, that, that uh, uh, we just met up right before the reading, and it turns out we're both doing the same thing, which is reading uh, work that's totally inappropriate uh, for the East Village or the KGB bar, and uh, also reading a few uh, short pieces followed by a longer piece that's an essay written out as a poem. So, uh, and we just found this out, so there's a, there's a parallel existence there. Uh, so I'm going to uh, read a few of these short... I've been writing some short essays that are, that are less than a, a, a page long. And uh, they're probably inspired by, by Lydia's stories that are less than a page long. But some of So here, I'll read a few of these. On June 9th, 1603... Samuel de Champlain attended, attended an Algonquin victory ceremony along the banks of the Ottawa River. He sat with the Grand Sagamore, Besuat, in front of a row of spikes topped with the heads of the defeated enemy, and watched as the Grand Sagamore's wives and daughters danced before them entirely naked, wearing only necklaces of dyed porcupine quills. After the dancing, the conversation turned to theology. The Grand Sagamore told Champlain that there was one sole God. After God had created all things, he stuck some arrows in the ground, and these turned into the men and women who populated the earth. Champlain told the Grand Sagamore that this was pagan superstition and false. There was indeed one sole God, but after he had created all things, he took a lump of clay and made a man, and then took one of the man's ribs and made a woman. The Grand Sagamore looked doubtful, but following the rules of hospitality, remained silent. Sorry, I have to change glasses here. I have many, many glasses, and so many, uh, these ones are not working. Each year, in the village of Pulipudapet in Tamil Nadu in the south of India, a very young girl is selected to marry a frog. The customs of a traditional Indian wedding, uh, Indian wedding are followed. Half the village becomes the bride's family and half the groom's. Accompanied by a marching band, the groom is led on a white horse to be welcomed at the bride's home. The entire nuptial ceremony is performed. The couple circles the sacred fire seven times. The edge of the bride's sari is tied to the groom's sash. Their heads are held together by the priest. After the wedding banquet, the frog is released in a pond. The bride returns to her life as a schoolgirl. When she grows up, she is free to take a second human husband. An Indian journalist visited Pulipu de Pet to witness the ceremony. He asked the villagers why, each year, they marry a very young girl to a frog. 
No one knew. It was just what they had always done. The Mara in northeast India say that ordinary mortals, when they die, go to Athiki, the village of the dead. There it is night when it is day here, and day when it is night. Fish are bamboo leaves there, and bears are hairy caterpillars. The spirit lives for a long time in Athiki, but ultimately dies and comes back to earth. The spirit of a powerful person turns into a bit of heat mist that rises into the sky. The spirit of a poor person becomes a worm and is eaten by a chicken. They say that when people dream, their souls wander off at the end of a long, invisible string. When they have a bad dream, they tell everyone about it. When they have a good dream, they keep it to themselves. They say that there is a giant ficus tree growing on the moon, and the marks on the moon's face that we see are its branches. Living in the tree is a headless monkey. The greatest hunters go forever to paradise called Peira. It is close to the one god and occupied by few, for one must have killed a man in battle, an elephant, a tiger, a bear, a small tree bear, a serao, a gural, a mythoon, a rhinoceros, a sambor, a barking deer, a wild boar, a crocodile, a hamadryad, an eagle, one of each of the kinds of hornbill, and a king crow. Government troops now keep the peace, and many of the animals are no longer there, so it is unlikely that any Mara will ever go to paradise again. The Luche, neighbors of the Mara, believe that earthquakes are caused by the people who live in the lower world, shaking the ground to see if anyone is still alive up there. When an earthquake occurs, the Luche run out of their houses and shout, Alive! Alive! So that those below will know and stop the shaking. So now I'm going to read a, a, a long one. Um, and this is also something that I, I just finished a few days ago. And it's a, uh, it's a collaboration with... Uh, it's, it's about birds in New Zealand, so that's really appropriate. Um, uh, you know, especially in the time of Occupy, Occupy Wall Street and so forth. Um, and it's a, uh, a collaboration with a wonderful uh, Maori painter uh, whose name is Shane Cotton. And um, one of the things that he does is these amazing paintings that are of sort of, of, of uh, rock cliffs and then uh, local birds that are sort of falling off the cliffs. And uh, he also has a lot of words on his paintings. And the words tend to be from the, the, the Maori uh, translation of the Bible. Because the Maori religion now is a sort of combination of, of traditional Maori beliefs and, and, uh, and uh, Christian beliefs. So, um, and there's also a lot of red in there, so red shows up in there. So, um, some of this is, is, you know, relates directly to the paintings, but I think it stands alone without it. And then there's also, there's a few quotes from him in there, and then quotes from various traditional Maori sources, and then also from the Bible. 
And this is what it sounds. Obviously, I've never read this before because I just wrote it. And it's called The Ghosts of Birds. And as I said, it's laid out as a poem, but it's a kind of... Uh, Lydia and I were trying to talk about, you know, what do we call this genre? If you have prose poetry, this is sort of like uh, poetry essay or poem essay or something like that. Because it's nonfiction, but it looks like a poem. The Ghosts of Birds. In the storm along the cliff face, they perch, hover, twisted, fall. The birds calling their own names. Kia, cries the Kia. Riro Riro, says the Riro Riro. Koi Koiya, says the Koi Koiya, the long-tailed cuckoo who sings only when the wind is from the north or west. Aloft, floating, birds in a space that no one's ever seen. The sharp-eyed Miro Miro, who brings back errant wives and husbands, who must be captured and then released for the sweet potatoes to flourish. The Kuruwai, with its watery eyes, who could predict success or failure in battle. Its song at dawn could revive a dying man. The Kirangi, the harrier, the child of the goddess of fire, its small red feathers, the seeds of flame. KKK is its call, and Rangi, the heavens. Kirangi, a sound in the sky. Birds in the storm clouds, birds in the stars of the southern cross. The Toroa, alba, the albatross, long and gliding, its whiteness comes from the heaven of light. When fog descends, the Toroa thinks only of home. Why does it spend so much time on the sea? The Kotuko, the white heron, who is seen only once in a lifetime, its rareness, its whiteness, provoke lamentation and respect. The great albatross has flown off on the wind. The great albatross has flown, leaving me with white heron feathers in my hair. There they scurry, they dart. The matata, the fern bird, who can barely fly. The landlocked kakapo, the parrot of the night. The hidden bird who tells the future. The kokako, the crow, who brought Maui water, and Maui rewarded it with long legs so it could walk through mud and water and not get wet. It says, wio hu hu wio, and sounds like people talking. A kiwi crying, kiwi. It can hear the sounds of worms moving in the earth. A weka patiently waits for the kiwi to find the food it steals. A kiwi, startled, stops still, curls up, itself looks like a lump of earth, and disappears. They dart, the tiny titipunamo, a messenger of the gods, whose name means a vision of green jade, and the British saw as the rifleman, for its color matched the uniforms of the rifle brigade. The Tui, guardian of the sacred number 12, who is trained to talk syllable by syllable by altering its tongue and throat until it could repeat songs, prayers, proverbs, genealogies, and words of welcome 
Tui means to fasten or sew. Its song ties heaven to earth. They perch. The pipiwaruwaraoa, the migratory shining cuckoo, the little bird of the long journey, the harbinger of spring. Its name is the name of a thin cloud that stretches across the sky. It holds a pebble in its mouth to slake its thirst as it flies from Indonesia. It calls out, witi witi ora, safely, safely crossed alive. The birds in the cliff face, the faces in the cliff face. The Kokomako, whom Captain Cook named the bellbird, its song, said Joseph Banks, is like small bells exquisitely tuned. It too carries messages from and to the gods. The day begins when it sings, Matariki is a star, a star in the Pleiades, but I am but a small bellbird. Fluttering, the Hiwaiwaka, the Tirairaka, the Tiwakawaka, the Titakakaka, all the names of the fantail, the flycatcher, the bird that never rests. Kotane Matanui, Tane can see all you do, for he is a god, and the birds are his eyes. Fluttering, twittering, parakeets, 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 young girls would paint themselves like parakeets, bothersome children are like parakeets. If you dream a parakeet is lying in an oven, you may be certain that soon you will die. The shells of hatched parakeets turn into maggots, which turn into lizards, which creep down the throats of sleeping people. Parakeets. Kakariki, the red-crowned parakeet, who had his head splashed with blood when Maui killed the eel monster Tunarua. Red, the color of bravery. Red, the sacred color of the gods. Red feathers on the cloaks, mats, axes, kites, headdresses, digging sticks, the gables of houses, the ceremonial aprons. Red feathers tied to the middle finger of the corpse of a chief. There were ninety shades of red. Red feathers were said to shine in darkness. Red shift. It shifts to red as it retreats in distance and time. Perched, hovering, they dwelleth and abideth on the rock, upon the crag of the rock. Taimai, a place and a bird. The bird escaped capture by melting into a rock. The place is the land around the rock. The puriri trees of Taimai are laughing. Taimai means tortoise from the sea. Its name is Taimai. It exists. It exists. Fluttering. Kaangaro reo reo tangata kiki emanu. No human voice was heard, only the twittering of the birds. The conference of the birds. You're a sly one, you're a beggar, you're a parasite, you're a kingfisher. Greetings to you, a white heron sitting by the river at the setting sun. I shall die in my nest. Pigeons are like a lot of eels on a stick. Ducks are gluttons. A bearded man is cause for a cormorant to vomit. He who scales cliffs will die by the cliff. 
My legs are always adorned with red feathers. They treat me well wherever I go. Hiwa, kiahiwa, be alert, be very alert. Floating aloft, falling through the space no one's ever seen, the ghosts of birds. For the cormorants of the open sea and the cormorants of the rivers and the lakes started a war of all the birds over whose fishing grounds were superior. The seabirds were stronger, the land birds more clever, and the land birds won. A red-billed gull, Tarapunga, seen inland, is looking for the bodies of his dead comrades. O thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, that holdest the height of the hill, Thou, though thou shouldst make thy nest as high as an eagle, I will bring thee down. The birds of ghosts, the ghosts of birds, calling their own names. The cow-cow, the moor-park owl, hoots cow-cow. It lives by night, it belongs to the underworld, its frightening eyes a sign of evil. A thin film covers its unblinking eyes, a thin film made from the fingernails of corpses. The tieke, the saddleback, cries tieke, tieke. Its voice is the spirit of a dead warrior, warning those who would trespass in his territory. It guards over treasures and a great stone called taininihi that could move on its own from place to place. Who, who, who murmurs the matuku, the bittern, as it stands still for hours, pretending it is not there? They say those sounds are the cries of heavenly beings who have come to earth and cannot find their way home. Miro, miro feathers in the hair of the dead. They say in the war with the white people, an old woman was left to guard the village. She sang... No sound, no cry, but the titi calling in the dark, calling as they go by. They fly in pairs, but I'm alone, alone like the kiwi's solitary egg left in the roots of the tawai trees, three trees above my head, and I an egg left hidden in the roots. Kotare, the kingfisher, was perched above a tui singing sweetly in the trees, the kingfisher dived, pierced the tui's skull, and let it fall dead to the ground. Then it flew away. The ghosts of birds. No rain falls. Thunder. Birds crash on the cliff face. The ghosts. The koreki, the treasure bird, the bird of signs, brought down from heaven by Tawaki so that its feathers could adorn his wife. A quail now extinct. The wakeow, the laughing owl, who lived in deep hollows in those cliffs, it vanished a century ago, stung to death by imported bees. It didn't laugh, it shrieked. The solitary Takahe called Moho the Hermit, who disappeared for decades and then appeared again, no one knew from where. The Hokioi, extinct for centuries, who sang hokioi, hokioi, but at night on the eve of battle it would screech kakao, kakao, the sound it made choking on the hair of the heads of the warriors 
who would die the next day. They plummet, twisted backwards. The, the beautiful Huia was a celestial bird. It guarded the door to the twelfth heaven, its twelve tail feathers, the twelve months and twelve periods of darkness, and twelve stages of gestation before a child is born. A single feather could ward off bad luck. The male with its short beak fed the female with her long beak. She did not feed him. They were inseparable, and one did not long outlive the other. They were too trusting of humans and vanished in 1907. The ghosts, the Pio Pio, whose song Pio Pio will never be heard again. The Toroa, the albatross, forever at sea, for a man and his wife could not stop arguing, so the gods turned him into an albatross and condemned him to wander the endless sea. His wife became a tree fern, and in shame she let her long hair fall in front of her face, and these are the long fronds swaying in the wind. The Riro Riro sings, Riro, Riro Riro Riro, gone, 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 gone. We are like the cormorant sitting on a rock. The tide rises, flows over the rock, and it flies away. We have no dry resting place. Gone, gone. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Perched, hovering, twisted backwards, falling. Flying birds like sand on the seashore and a kuaka that lands. A single bird that imprints the dune. And its tracks wrote, Taimai, a rock, a bird, toward us from the sea. It exists, it exists. Thanks. <laughs>